Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known to the nations, or to learn about our ministry in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. I first introduced the message for today six years ago. Here it is again as we consider the triumph of a good desire. We're considering Psalm 27, and we need to understand its context. It is thought that this psalm was likely composed by David during the time in which he was forced to flee from Jerusalem during the rebellion of his son Absalom. David's life had been a test. He had for years been forced to flee from King Saul, but eventually he had been exalted as king over Israel. One of his first acts was to make Jerusalem his capital, to establish his palace there and his government there and his family there, and then he brought the tabernacle up to Jerusalem. There in that tent, the worship of Yahweh was expressed for the nation. There, the sacrifices for the sins of the people were offered up. There, a way into the presence of a holy God was celebrated, a way opened up by God himself for the people so that they might know forgiveness, and for them, they might be able to bring their prayers before him. Now David has been forced to flee Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 24 and 26, we read that there was Zadok, who was the high priest, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, we are told that David fled Jerusalem. He covered his head, and he wept, and all the people with him. This is the context of Psalm 27. Again, considering this passage and looking at it, please take note that David is facing a trial here. He's facing a testing. He is in the midst of an excruciating battle and test. He says here, The wicked come against me to eat my flesh. He speaks of enemies and foes. He anticipates an army that would encamp and lay siege against him. War rises up against me, he says. He says, my father and my mother forsake me. The word there could be even if my father and mother forsake me. But what David is realizing is this struggle, this battle, this difficulty, this challenge is one that is so deep and so profound that even those nearest and dearest to him cannot go with him into it. In fact, to some extent, their failure to be able to go with him is It is as if they had forsaken him. He even anticipates in the midst of all this that God might hide his face from him and forsake him as well. And so he says, do not hide your face from me. Do not leave me forsaken. He is surrounded by those who are eroding his reputation and who are declaring falsehoods against him. False witnesses have arisen against me and breathe out violence against me. The song is so triumphant, actually, when you begin to read it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? The song is so wonderful, it's so bright, it's so brilliant that you might forget that it's like this brilliant sunrise that's painted on a black velvet. We don't realize that he's singing the song while facing tremendously dark trials. He is in the midst of probably, likely, the greatest battle of his life. You have faced them in the past yourself, right? Battles, challenges, moments of darkness and despair and difficulty, and you will face them again. 
Here is our first point from what we want to learn from Psalm 27 this morning. You'll face battles and you must identify what should be your chief concern in the battle. I'm going to face difficulties. I'm going to face challenges. I'm going to face battles. I'm going to face bereftment. I'm going to face those moments when everything seems to be stripped from me and I'm surrounded by adversity. I'm in the midst of the battle. What should be my great overall concern in the midst of the battle. It's kind of a common story. Men go off to battle. They go out to wage war. They march their way out to battlefields to face incredible odds. And what they hope at that time, as they're marching out with fellow soldiers, is that they will be brave. That they, in fear, will not find themselves to be cowards. Stephen Ambrose, the World War II historian, writes that the one thing that the majority of the soldiers learned in World War II was just this, when they returned home, that they were not cowards, that they didn't, quote, collapse into a pathetic mass of quivering jello in the midst of the fight. And it was a wonderful self-discovery. That is the concern we should have. This is what it ought to be. God, I want to stand in the day of testing. I want the major concern of my life be that I should be brave in the midst of the battle. The major concern of my life should not be that I avoid the day of testing. The major concern of my life shouldn't be that at all cost I try to get off of as many battlefields as quickly as possible. If your major desire is to avoid conflict and battles and besiegement and difficulties and hardships, you are in the wrong place and you're in the wrong company. The fact is that the Lord Jesus told us that when we came to Him, we did not come to the end of all of our trials, but in many ways to the beginning of it. And if you thought that coming to Jesus would be the end of all your difficulties, well then, you should be learning by now that you were grossly mistaken. Here's what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. Basically, if men reject the light of His truth, they're going to reject the light of His followers. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I've said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Just remember it. Keep it in mind. Paul understood the lesson. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says matter-of-factly, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's kind of hard for us oftentimes to imagine that. We oftentimes as Christians read the book of Revelation and we worry, we try to comfort ourselves by thinking that we won't have to go through it, the tribulation, it scares us. And So I, I think a lot of people who have a pre-tribulational rapture, which by the way is the position I take in the rapture, that is that before the great tribulation that breaks out upon the earth, I, I believe God is going to call the believers who are on the earth into his presence. There are other people who disagree with me and they're good and godly men who have maybe as good a grasp or better grasp than I have of scripture and of these passages. But I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That brings a lot of people comfort. In fact, a lot of people are motivated to believe in the pre-tribulational rapture because they don't want to go through tribulation. Let me just share with you that today there are people, Christians around the world, who think they're in the midst of the great tribulation right now. They are suffering tremendously in ways that we can't imagine. And the Bible says 
That actually is to be considered, in a sense, the norm. What we're to anticipate in this life. The question is not, the concern must not be, will I suffer trials and temptations and persecutions and battle sieges? The right concern for the Christian soldier is, will I be brave in the fight? Will I hold up in the midst of the trials of life? You know, another common kind of war story that you can read in almost any war novel you read is the story of the tough-talking braggart who excels in all the war games, but when the battle takes place, he's the first one to crumble. Ambrose writes that these cliches of war novels are written this way precisely because they are true. (laughs) It just happens over and over again. The soft-spoken individual who didn't say much, didn't thump his chest, didn't get a lot of attention is the one in the midst of the battle that has the clear eye and comes through. But oh, what a joy, even when the battle is not finished or won, to discover that you are brave in the fight. Even when there are still more battles to come, to find out that it wasn't all talk on your part, that it wasn't all practice, that the preparation had paid off, that you were ready for the struggle against the foes that come against you. Again, let me share with you an account that Ambrose shares in the Battle of D-Day to take the beaches of Normandy. He shares a series of accounts of all that took place and transpired when the allies came upon the beaches, in particular United States soldiers came upon the beaches the beach at Omaha. On that day, over 2,000 men were killed or severely wounded as they rushed the machine gun bunkers of the German army. That day began the movement to liberate Europe from Hitler's machine. After that day, once they got off the beach into the high ground, it began just a sequence of exhaustive battles that would take place after that as they tried to fight their way through the various hedgerows of the French countryside. But for many the victory for them was found at the end of that very first day. That's when they found their victory. Here is a testimony from one individual. His name is Sergeant John Ellery. Ambrose has, in the final chapter, surveying this time in which the Battle of D-Day took place, he has various testimonies that different individuals wrote and spoke of testifying to that day. This one was the most compelling to me. Sergeant John Ellery of the 16th Regiment, 1st Division, recalled the end of that first day for himself. In his recollection, there is a phrase that is worthy of the title of a book. Let me give you the the phrase. It's this. I walked in the company of very brave men. I think that'd be a good name for a book. I walked in the company of very brave men. To appreciate the quote or that phrase, listen to the whole quote. The first night in France, I spent in a ditch beside a hedgerow wrapped in a damp half-shelter and thoroughly exhausted. But I felt elated. It had been the greatest experience of my life. I was ten feet tall. No matter what happened, I had made it off the beach and reached the high ground. I was king of the hill, at least in my own mind, for a moment. My contribution to the heroic tradition of the United States Army might have been the smallest achievement in the history of courage. But at least for a time, I had walked in the company of very brave men. No one likes difficulties. No one likes trials. No one likes battles. Life can and will at times tip into a state of constant siege. The world, the flesh, the devil will pour in upon us 
we can become confronted by the consequences of years of our own bad choices, of our own faulty conditioning by the sins of others and by our own sins. And there are times when we can anticipate being surrounded by floods of adversity. The real question is, how will I hold up in the day of testing? What will be the outcome of the conflict? Will I come through to victory even in a ditch in the midst of the battle? Will I be able to find a song of discovery and of triumph? I think in Psalm chapter 27... That's exactly what's happened to David here. He has gone out and he's passed through his night of weeping and the day of rejoicing has come to him. He's not simply whistling in the dark. I think it's very likely that David is still in the midst of this conflict and this challenge and this battle. Things have not been resolved. But he has had a flash of discovery that's come upon him that is so profound and so wonderful in the midst of an event that he has brought upon himself. Read the history. What happens to David here before Absalom is largely of his own doing, is his own sin and his own compromises, and the consequences have come upon him. And he's been forced to flee Jerusalem. And he's wept. And he's mourned. But in the midst of all this, He discovers something that's so wonderful and so brilliant that it floods his night with the light of day and it fills him in this light with a song of praise. This has been the Bread of Life. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work around the world or in your neighborhood or for a copy of this message, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until our next time together in God's Word, may God bless you.